This is going to sound a little bit weird, but over the weekend, um, over the weekend, I've done a lot of thinking. And I miss September 12th, 2001. While September 11th, 2001 is remembered as one of the most evil days in American history, September 12th is remembered as the day that humanity prevailed. And this time, this time of year is bittersweet for me. It's my favorite time of year. I love just watching the change of the seasons. The orange glow to the sunset of an afternoon, the start of the, some of the weedy leaves starting to turn red. But this season's also very important to me because on September 11th, 2021, it's when I started talking to God again. For a long period of my life, I had tried to do things on my own. And for those who may be here today who are trying to do things on your own, hear me out. You can try all you want, but you will never succeed. While this was still two years, some two years, before my prodigal walk back home, it was a starting point in my life. It was a starting point again in my life to where I started to try my best to live what God desired for me. Little did I know what he had in hand. But one thing that I did understand, that I did find out later, was through all that time of my straying, there was an anchor. There was an anchor of hope that was grounded for me to go back to. And while I was drifting here and there during that storm, I was tethered to that hope. And it was that hope that brought me back. Many of us today are in those same storms. We may not even realize it. But somewhere along the line, our life strays. God has promised that the saints will persevere. But he never said that they wouldn't stray. And today as we're digging into this scripture, my desire is to give you two keys to help you persevere but also three helps to give you encouragement along the way. But before we do that, I want us to take a time of prayer. I want us to pray just what that prayer said. I desire the unity that our nation once had. What saddens me is it took tragedy for us to be united. Brothers and sisters, we have a savior who has already united us. So anybody who wants to, you can come forward. You can stay right where you are, it doesn't matter. But at this time, I want us to take a time to pray for true revival to take place in our nation. Not a service, not a list of services, but a revival that takes place first in each one of our hearts and like a wildfire spreads throughout all of our nation. So anyone who wants to, come pray with me.
21 years, Lord. Sometimes, God, I forget that some of the people listening to my voice right now weren't even here. When that day hit, that forever changed us. In a moment, God, we realized that the bubble of safety that we thought we had been living in for so many years had popped. In a moment, Lord, we realized how valuable the lives that we are given, how valuable they truly are. In a moment, Lord, we realized that we were desperate in need of some safety, some security. And many, Lord, had no idea where that safety and security would come from. Father, I'm thankful that when that day hit, there was already an anchor set in place in my life. I'm thankful, Lord, that even in the midst of tragedy, you started a work in me, Lord, that would grow into something that I never could have imagined. I'm thankful, God, for all the men and women who while so many were running out of the buildings, they were running in. I am thankful, God, that even though we were shaken, we were not utterly destroyed. But Father, what I'm most thankful for is what I saw took place on Wednesday. I saw people looking at the man and woman next to them and seeing them as human beings. I saw people treating each other with respect and dignity. I saw many, Lord, crying out to you. And I saw you do a work in many of our lives. Father, a revival started in many people's hearts that day. And we desire for you to do it again. Father, we desire for you to do something in our lives that we can't explain. We desire for you to bring us together and for us to not allow anything to tear us apart. Father, we desire that we would set aside our thoughts, our opinions, and all of our differences and that we would focus on the one thing that can truly bring unity to our lives and that is you. Father, I know that as services are going on right now, Many families are still heartbroken. Many families are still reliving those moments. And I pray, Lord, for a peace and comfort that can only come from your Holy Spirit. I know that there are many, Lord, who are still dealing with the nightmares 
of what they lived that day. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring continual strength to them day in and day out. Father, I pray for those, Lord, who you woke up during that moment. I pray that their heart is still burning on fire like it was that moment. But Father, we desire that you do it again. Father, revive us. Revive us to the realization of who you are, of how good you are, of how loving you are, and how much, Lord, you care for us. Revive our hearts, Lord, to the reality of the sin that we live in, the life that we shouldn't be living, and help us, Lord, to turn and repent. Father, I pray this morning that you would do what only you can do in our lives. Give us faith. Give us passion. Give us Jesus. Father, I know that there is a day coming when there will be no more tears. When there will be no more pain. When there will be no more sorrow, grief, or heartache. But Father, I also know that when that day comes, there will be many who do not know you. Father, we pray this morning for the lost individuals who don't even understand that they're lost. We ask that you would not only put people before them, but that you would draw them to yourself. Father, we do pray for the day that your son comes back for his church. And we pray, Lord, that when he comes back, he will find a bride whose passion and love is burning deep inside of her. Father, we are your church. Revive us again. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I always struggle with days like today whenever there's a special event or Something's taking place in history. But as we've been going through Hebrews, I found out how faithful his scripture is, no matter the circumstance. But over the weekend, I was sitting back and I was just, like many of you, you probably watched a lot of the shows that I watched as well. But a thought come to my mind Friday night. And it's a thought that I'd never had before. How did we persevere? You ever thought about that? How did we persevere that day that evil showed its ugly face? There are many countries that a blow like that would have completely disintegrated that country. There are countries that would have not been able to withstand the grief, the heartache, and even the economic catastrophe that come after it. There were many countries who would not and were not prepared to offer a defense 
or even an offensive in response to that. How is it that we persevered? But that same question can be asked by us as believers. How is it that we as believers persevere? Now with me saying that question, I wanna give you a definition to the word persevere because a lot of people don't understand what the word persevere really means. They think it just means that people hold on to what they believe. But the word persevere actually means a lot more than that. Perseverance is persistence in doing something despite difficulty or delay. See, perseverance is more than just hanging on. Perseverance is pushing through. And there are many today, not only in the sound of my voice, but in our nation, who are struggling with pushing through. As we read last week, we read the first part of Hebrews chapter six, one of the hardest scriptures in all of the Bible. We read about how this is actually not talking about a loss of salvation, but it's talking about a difference between true believers and the people who play church. But the writer of Hebrews wants to go on a little bit deeper because he wants to be sure that the people who are hearing what he has to say will be able to persevere. And just like I said at the beginning, today my heart is to give you two keys to persevere, but also to give you three encouragements to help you persevere when things get rough. So starting off in Hebrews chapter six, verses nine through 12, this is what the writer says. But beloved, he's talking to us. We are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards him, <clears throat> towards his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited a promise. Now, when the writer is coming at the people, the people, the Hebrew people with this, he wants to be sure that they understand what it is going to take to persevere. And he gives us two keys in this. In verse 10, he points out that by their works, they will persevere. It is because of their works that they do persevere. Now, I want to be sure that you understand something. The writer is not talking about working for your salvation. He's talking about the works that come alongside salvation after you are saved. I'm not going to spend a lot of detail here because Jerry preached a great sermon back on February 13th called, Now That I Am a Servant. And you can find this video on YouTube if you want to know what it's, what it's talking about, about working after your salvation. This is a great sermon on that. But I want to leave you with a couple of points on working after your salvation. 
If you are not doing God's work, you are doing Satan's work. A lot of you will think, whoa, now, that's pretty bold, Scotty. That's a pretty bold statement. If you're not doing God's work, you're doing Satan's work. How can you say that, Scotty? Because there's no fence. There's no fence to straddle. There's either yes or no, right or wrong. There's no gray areas when it comes to your life after Christ. We all know it. We all know that we have been created for his purpose and his glory. And part of accomplishing his purpose is found in the things that we do. The people we talk to. The people we minister to. The Sunday school uh, lessons we teach. The children that we take care of. The widows that we minister to. The orphans that we take in. The families that we feed. The kids that we clothe. We love doing all these things because they make us feel good about who we are. But you need to understand, it's more than just a feeling about who you are and about the purpose you have. It's about you being the hands and feet of Jesus. Jesus said that you will do even greater things when the Holy Spirit comes and indwells your life. When Jesus said this, you know what he's meaning? He's meaning there are no spectator Christians. There are no spectator believers. You're either in the game or you're not in at all. You're either doing God's work or you're doing Satan's work. James even went on to say, just as the body without the spirit is dead, we know that if our spirit is not in our body, this body is dead. Faith without works is dead. And what he is trying to get around to here is there is no time for you to really slow down when it comes to working for God. There's no time to slow down. Reasons there are no time to slow down. None of us, not a single one of us, know if we'll be here tomorrow or not. 21 years ago, today, 3,011 people went to work, got on a plane, expecting to go home to their loved ones that evening. Just like that everything changed. This is the reason we can't say, well, God, I've got this to do today, but tomorrow I promise I will do your work. You don't know that you have tomorrow. The work that God has for you to do today is today. And the reason we must be active in doing God's work is because it gives us purpose. I love seeing new faces come through those doors. It brings great joy to my heart. 
I love sin when the pews are absolutely full. Again, it brings joy to my heart. But I know a couple of things that I've learned over the years. And one of those things is, is if you do not get plugged into a faith family, you will not stay. You will not stay. And the reason you will not stay is because you will never feel like you have any purpose for that faith family. When I'm talking about getting plugged into a faith family, I'm not just talking about joining a Sunday school. I'm not just talking about joining a small group. I'm not just talking about coming to service. I'm talking about coming to serve. Coming to serve your fellow man and woman and child. If a person gets plugged in serving in church, the statistics of them staying go through the roof. But a person who does not get involved in serving, period, will flounder in their faith for life. Works bring us purpose. All of us have had those days. One of the, I had one of those days yesterday. It was one of those days where you wanted to do things outside. I've got grass that looks like a hay field right now. And I know some of y'all can feel me on that. And I was just dying to do something. So I seen a big brush pile. I got a blowtorch. That's fun. I was sitting there, I was, lighting that, I was lighting that brush pile on fire and I started seeing all these things fly out. And I know some of y'all are gonna think, this is so horrible, Scotty. But there was a huge bald-faced hornet nest right in the middle of that. So I took that blowtorch and I stuck it right into the hole and I singed every one of them little suckers. Now, it doesn't seem like I did a lot yesterday, but you know what? I went in the house, I was dirty. I went in the house, I was sweaty. I went in the house smelling like smoke. And I went in the house feeling like I had accomplished something that day. The reason work is important to persevering as a Christian is because work makes you feel like you've done something. And let's just be honest. When we don't feel like we've done nothing, we feel useless. And when we feel useless, we quit. We quit. First key is your work. And true work is more than just staying busy. We've got that down. We're good at just staying busy. True work is about doing something with an internal purpose. Mom, dad, look at your kids right now. That is something with an eternal purpose. Wives, look at your husband right now. Believe it or not, there's even an eternal purpose in that. Husbands, look at your wives. There are eternal purpose in that. Now, everybody, look around. Go ahead, look around. Look around at everybody in here. Some of them are pretty, some of them are ugly. I can't help that. <laughs> there is eternal purpose in that. When you start serving others, you truly find out what God's glory and God's purpose is all about. So the first thing he does is he points out your work.
But the second thing he points out is also in verse 10. He points out your love. Bold statement number two. If you are not loving an individual, you are hating them. Somebody help me. What's the in between? What's the in between? Is there? Some will say, well, there's like. No, I love people that I don't like. You'll get me on that in a little bit. My wife loves me. She doesn't always like me. I love my kids. I don't always like them. I love my church family. Secret, I don't always like y'all. But you know what? I know y'all don't always like me either. Like is not a lesser form of love. It's about a connection. Love goes beyond a connection because love is a universal, eternal thing. Love is the absence of hate and hate is the absence of love. When Jesus is being approached by some of the Pharisees, they ask him straight up, said, Jesus, What's the best, what's the greatest of the commandments? Now, what they were trying to do is they were trying to catch him up. They were trying to get him hung up on which one of the 10, Jesus, are you gonna say is the greatest of all commandments? Which one? Which one is it? Honor your father and mother? Don't kill? Don't steal? No false idols? Don't take the Lord's name in vain? Which one is it? And the statement that Jesus brings back to them it's simple, but it is so much to the point. Jesus says to him, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And the second one is not the first, but love your neighbor as yourself. All of the commandments, every single one of them, hinge on love. But how is that? How is it that every one of the commandments hinge on love? Well, the first one is one God. The second one is no false idols. No gods before me. The third one is don't take the Lord's name in vain. And the fourth one is keep the Sabbath holy. All of those things have to do with God. All four of them have to do with God. If you love God, naturally, you're going to do what? You're going to hold to those four. Even if you didn't know those four, if you truly love God, you're going to hold that he is God, that there is no other gods but him. You don't swear by your mom's name, do you? No. If you truly love God like you love your mama, you're not going to swear by her name either or his name either. And if you truly love God, you're going to realize that he rested and he knows you need to rest too. If you love God, you've got those four covered. Well, what about the other six? Honor your father and mother. Don't kill. Keep your marriage vows. Do not commit adultery. Don't steal. 
Don't lie. And don't want what's not yours. All of those have to do with humanity. Every single one of the commandments either have to do with your love for God or your love for humanity. If you love somebody, you're not going to kill them. If you love somebody, you're not going to steal from them. If you love somebody, you're not going to lie about them. And that's what Jesus is getting to on this. Every single one of the commandments hinge on love. And that's why Jesus commanded us to love. To love is to be obedient. To hate is disobedience. It's disobedience. The reason hate is so despised by God is because hate is a cancer that rots our hearts. Hate is the reason that families are destroyed. Hate is the reason that churches are divided. And today, let's not forget this one. Hate is the fuel that drove 19 men to do what they did 21 years ago. A Christian who hates another individual is not a Christian. You're deceiving yourself you're lying to yourself and it's time to repent. If hate is the cancer, there is only one cure and that cure is the love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I get it, guys. There's times where I get hung up because there's things that I see happening that I wonder, where's the love? You get what I'm saying? If God loves all the world, why does he allow so many horrible things to happen? He's all-powerful. He's all-controlling. And there was a time in my life where I looked at what God did and I thought, that's pretty angry. That's pretty hateful. That's pretty harsh. But I heard a pastor once tell a story about a young woman in Chicago. And she was walking to her work early one morning. And out of the corner of her eye, she noticed a gentleman right beside her. He looked absolutely mad at the world. Every turn she took, he was right there beside her. It absolutely flipped her out. She kept walking. He stayed right there beside her. She got faster. He got faster. She comes to a crosswalk. 
And she starts going across. And about that moment, from the back, she feels a huge shove. Trying to keep her balance, she trips over the curb, face plants right into the sidewalk. Just like many of us, she got up absolutely angry. Before she could even turn around, what are you doing was coming out of her mouth. And as she turned around, she saw the man laying face down in front of the city bus. The push that she got from the back that she took as harsh was actually one of the most selfless forms of love this woman had ever seen. This man who looked angry, this man who appeared to be bitter at the whole world in a selfless act saved her life. You know, a lot of times we can look at God and we can say, he must be angry. He must be bitter. But brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. Everything that God has done has been to save our lives. If we as believers are going to persevere, the two keys that we're going to need in our life is our work and our love. But we're also going to need some encouragement along the way. And that encouragement comes in the form of examples, an oath, and even an anchor. In verses 3 through 15, the writer says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained that promise. One of my favorite things about the Bible is just the life stories that you read in it. The example that the writer wants to give here is Father Abraham, the father of the whole children of Israel. Everybody in Hebrew, in the Hebrew word world knew who Abraham was and they held him up with great regard. But the more you read about Abraham, the more you realize this guy's not all that you thought he would be. Because you read into the story a little bit, and don't worry, it's not gross. But you read into the story a little bit, and you find out that Abraham married his half-sister. Go ahead. Ooh. But Abraham married his half-sister. And his half-sister, Sarah, she was absolutely beautiful. She was a knock-down, drag-out, beautiful woman. And a lot of people noticed this too. And as they are going around to city to city, there were certain individuals that noticed too. One individual was a king. He saw Sarah and Abraham coming in, and he thought to himself, man, 
What a beautiful woman. Abraham noticed that people were looking at him, so he goes over to his wife, his sister, whatever you want to call her. I know, kind of weird. And he says, I need you to do me a favor. Don't tell them I'm your husband. Tell them I'm your, that you're my sister. So he wasn't fully lying, okay? It's a half lie. It's a half lie. He wasn't fully lying. But this is the story. They tell the king. It's not my wife, my sister. The king's like, really? I want to date your sister. So the appointment gets set up. Somehow it's unbeknownst, but somehow the king finds out that it's really his wife. And he's angry. He's infuriated. He's infuriated because Abraham has almost caught him in a severe trap. Because this was a Hebrew king. And while the law hadn't been wrote yet, there was still a penalty for taking somebody else's wife. Death. Abraham, being sweet, innocent Abraham, almost tricked a king into death. Not once, but twice. Not only was Abraham a liar, Abraham wasn't a very patient man, and neither was Sarah. See, Sarah and Abraham were both told that they were going to be the parents of a child, and this child would bring in the seed of many nations and would be the seed of salvation. Well, they waited and waited and waited. 91, 92, 93, 94. That's how old they were. Can you imagine 94 years old waiting on a baby? Uh-uh. I don't, get, I don't do good waiting on seven-year-olds at 45. I definitely ain't going to do good at 90. So it looks like the impossible is not going to happen. So Sarah says, you know what? I've got this beautiful handmaid. Her name's Hagar. I want you to take her. And I want you to lay with her so that we can have a child. Abraham does what his wife asks, and sure enough, Hagar becomes pregnant. What you don't realize is that this child is the start of a conflict that started years ago that is still going on today. Ishmael, the son of Hagar, is one of the fathers of Islam. This is where the two separated. Abraham seems like a great guy, doesn't he? Not so great when you look at it for what it is. But through all of this, Abraham, even though he messed up, he stayed faithful. He stayed faithful. He's not the only one who messed up that we consider Bible heroes. David, oh my gosh, David, one of the greatest kings to ever live. 
was a murdering, lying, deceiving, adulterous man. It's a great guy, isn't it? Yet God called him a man after his own heart. Not only that, let's talk about Solomon for a minute, his son. Another great king, richest king to ever live. Had so many mother-in-laws, it's not even funny. Bless his heart. We look at these people and we see perfection. But these men and women that we read about in, this, in the Bible are nothing more than ordinary, everyday, average people. And they are examples that if God can use people like them, he can use us as well. Not only does he say we need examples to keep us encouraged, he also says we need to remember the promise. Verse 16 says, For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath is given, as confirmed in the end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show his heirs the promise and the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have taken refuge. <clears throat> we, who, <clears throat> we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Whenever we make an oath with somebody, we will put our hands on a Bible. Or, well, I, you shouldn't do it. But I swear to God, I didn't do it. I swear to God, baby, I didn't do it. We go to a higher authority. Why do we go to a higher authority? We go to a higher authority because that name is holy. That name is great. That name is bigger than us. But when God sweared his oath, whose name did he have to swear by? There is no greater authority. There is no greater name than the name of God. And you know, a lot of times God gets the credit for making promises that he never made. Let me ask you three questions. Did, did God ever promise that this body, this earthly body would not die? Did he ever promise that? No, when Adam and Eve fell, he told them that you will surely die. Did God ever promise that you would not have bad days? Did he ever promise you that every day was going to be cupcakes and kittens? No. He said, because of me, you will be persecuted. You will have troubles in this world, but don't let it overcome you. Because greater is he who is in you than the one who is in this world. He never said you wouldn't have bad days. He never said everything would be great. You know what else he also didn't say? God never promised that your dreams would come true. Parents, you might want to hold on to that one. Don't make promises to your kids that not even God made. 
He never promised everybody would have the 2.2 kids with the little white picket fence and the two-story house. He never promised that you would be able to be whatever you put your mind to. He never promised that you would be an all-star pro athlete. So what did he promise? He promised that through Abraham there would be a seed of salvation and a promised land. He promised that he is in control. Even in the middle of chaos, he is still on his throne. He promised that anyone who calls on him will be saved. And he also promised that he would complete the good work that he started in us. Have you ever really thought about the promises that God has truly given us? Because those are one of the key encouragements that we really need to persevere. And the last thing is the anchor. And I'm going to go through this and finish up. This hope we have as an anchor for our soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. An anchor is just that. An anchor is something that keeps you from moving from here to there. And once an anchor is dropped on a ship, that ship does not go anywhere. There's always a little bit of slack in an anchor. It'll drift a little bit to the left. It'll drift a little bit to the right. But that cast iron anchor is what holds that ship in place. And brothers and sisters, what he is saying here is we need to have the full assurance of the anchor of hope that has been set in our life. His name is Jesus. He died on the cross for a punishment that was not his. And he has told us that he is coming again for his church. And he has promised us this. The best days are still to come. When I look back at how America rebound, I see some similar things. America rebound because after September 11th, 2001, come September 12th, 2001. We saw what happened when people worked hard. We saw 19 people pulled from a horrendous pile of rubble. And we seen what happened when people love with no conditions whatsoever. One of the stories that's always stuck with me from September 11th, 2021 was stories about a guy, two gentlemen by the name of Dave Carnes 
and Chuck Sharika. On September 11th, 2001, a rookie Port Authority police officer named William Jamina was beginning his shift when the attacks took place. Before he boarded the bus with many other people that was heading to the World Trade Center, he called his wife, who was soon to be, who was expecting, with their second daughter. He wanted to let her know that he was heading to the scene because he knew she had already been watching TV. And he wanted her to know that he would be a little late. Unbeknownst to him, he would be very delayed. Because once he was on the scene, him, his sergeant, John McLaughlin, and another officer, Dominic Palazzo, started gathering equipment and made their way to the building. The only way they could make it to the building was to use the shopping mall that was located below the Twin Towers. The surface streets were covered with debris and police cars, ambulances, fire trucks, as far as they could see. So when they got down into the mall, the South Tower started to collapse. When the South Tower collapsed, it buried all three men and many others under about 30 feet of debris. That doesn't include the, the, the levels below. 30 minutes later, Dominic Palazzo was trying to fear a free John Milano because his legs were pinned by a big crossbeam. 30 minutes later, the North Tower collapses. A concrete beam comes shooting down a hole, narrowly missing John, but unfortunately, it killed Dominic. About 10 hours later, after being pinned underneath this rubble. Dominic started hearing a voice. If you can hear us, yell or tap. If you can hear us, yell or tap. At first he thought he was going into shock. He thought the voices that he were he was hearing was just an illusion in his mind. But something told him, told him to say, I'm over here. When he screamed out, I'm over here, two gentlemen ran to him. The two gentlemen were former Marine reservists. They had just showed up on scene with their uniforms to do everything they could to help. A third gentleman came along shortly after a former paramedic who had really no intentions of going down to help 
but because of a phone call that was made by his sister that was left on his answer machine. Her saying, I know you're down there helping. I'm praying for you. Because of that guilt, he ran down there. After three hours, these men were able to eventually get down a narrow hole where they found William Jamino, where they also heard Sergeant McLaughlin. And after three hours of a long rescue, William Jamino was finally pulled free. Six hours later, Sergeant McLaughlin, the last living survivor found in the rubble, was pulled from it. In a book, Mr. Jamino says this. As a survivor, I want people to know that there was more love than evil that day. As a survivor, the way we honor all those we lost is by being better humans, by loving more, and by giving unconditionally. One of those marinists on his way to the pile stopped by his little Baptist church in New York where the pastor and many parishioners had stopped to pray. He told them that he was going to that place, to the place where all the debris was and that he needed them to pray that God would lead him to some survivors. And he did. Shaliko, the former paramedic, Later in life, realized that it was a divine purpose for him to be there. And that through that event, God had used him to do something greater than he ever thought possible. And it was during that time shortly after that he surrendered and gave his life to Christ. Hard work. And love are what caused this country to persevere. For many, it had nothing to do with God. But for some, it had everything to do with Him. And this morning, there's two things you need to continue to persevere. Hard work and love. Those are the keys to us persevering in a world of chaos, in a world of uncertainty, in a world of not knowing. But as we're on the way, we need examples. We need not only examples in the Bible, but we need the examples of these two individuals to help push us forward. We need to remember the promise, the promise that's been made to us with an oath. He swore it by his name. It's unbreakable. But we also need to remember the anchor of hope 
that we have, that we found in his son, Jesus Christ. Do you have that anchor? Do you know that promise? Have you seen those examples? This morning, as the praise team comes up, you need Jesus. You need him for your salvation. You need him for tomorrow. You need him for next week. You need him until you go home to be with him. How you respond to him, that's up to you this morning. But if we will, everybody stand. And as I pray, you pray. But after I'm done, you respond. Whether it be here at the altar, in the pew, maybe you just need to grab the hand of the person next to you and say, I need prayer. Whatever you need to do, you do it. But after I pray, it's your time to respond. Father, this morning we come to you, Lord, thankful. Thankful for these two keys that you give us to help us persevere in a world of chaos and a world of confusion. Father, I do thank you for the work that you've allowed me to be a part of. And I am so thankful, God, that even with my past, you've still chosen to use me. But Father, I know that there are many here today, Lord, who need that purpose of working for you. So I pray that you would help them, Lord, to find what work you have for them in their life. Father, I want to thank you for the love that you've so richly shown me. I did not deserve anything that you've ever given me, but yet you still give me abundantly. And you don't do it, Lord, because you have to. You do it because you love me. For those here today, Lord, who just need to know you that they are loved, I pray that you would do in their life what only you can do. Fill their lives with hope. Fill their lives with joy. Fill their lives with peace. Fill their lives with you. Father, we love you. Thank you for all that you've done and all that you're going to do. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey guys, Pastor Scotty Gerard here, and I just wanted to say thank you for joining us today. We really hope that this has been a resource that's helped you grow in your purpose for God, but also grow in His glory. We also want to extend an invitation to you to join us here in person at Harmony Grove. We are located at 1008 Town Creek School Road in Blairsville, Georgia. We would love for you to come be a part of our service, to be a part of our small groups. If you have children, we have children's classes on Wednesday night and on Sunday morning. And all this information can be found on our website. We'd also like to continue help you in your growth with Christ. If you have a question, maybe a prayer request, or just need to talk to somebody, you can contact us in the emails below in the description, or you can also contact us through our app and through our website, which are also found in the description below. Again, we hope this has been a blessing to you because we know that you joining us today has been a great blessing to us. Thank you so much. God bless.